Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is Marsha Brownlee. Marsha, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Feeling caffeinated and ready to run. Awesome. And our guest today is Ellen Candler. And actually, I should be saying Dr. Ellen Candler. Uh, hey, Ellen, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited to talk to you today for a number of reasons. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, let's let's lead off with uh, what is in your freezer. Yeah, I have a whole mess of stuff in my freezer. Um, we didn't go hunting last year, or at least I should say I didn't go hunting last year. Uh, we weren't successful as a couple, um, so we don't have a lot of deer. We have some gifted deer, which was amazing. Uh, there's the head of my first deer that I shot um, with some little short antlers on it that I'm hoping to take off, but that was several years ago. It's just been sitting in the bottom of the freezer um, waiting to, to be dealt with. Uh, we have some lamb, uh, and then most um, treasured in our freezer are a uh, mess of morels that we found this spring. Ooh. Um, Ashley, can I ask some questions? Yeah, I, yes, so, go for it. We'll start with the uh, what might have the easier answer. Um, like, how do morels freeze? Because I can imagine them kind of like disintegrating a little bit upon <laughs> defrost. How's that go? Yeah, no, it works great. Um, we tried drying them and that, that works great too. I think a lot of people do that, um, but then you need to rehydrate them. But when we freeze them, we put them on just a cookie sheet in the freezer, um, lay them in there for like a day uh, and let them just freeze dry. And then we put them in a, uh, a bag, um, a air airtight bag and, and stick them in the freezer. And then when we take them out, they just rehydrate really well, really easy. Morels are really um, really hardy. So they, they do cool. pretty well. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. May I someday have a bounty of morale large enough to need to freeze them? <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> we are very my lucky. Second question, my second question is you mentioned uh, the deer head and that it has some small antlers you were hoping to remove. Can you expand on that? <laughs> sure. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so my husband and I, when we moved to Minnesota, I, I hunted as, as a kid, kind of. Um, I got out of that, and that's another story. Um, but when I moved to Minnesota, we got into hunting again, and we went through the DNR's Learn to Hunt program. Uh, and the second year we did it, uh, I shot a deer, uh, and it was a little, tiny little spike buck. Um, and I wanted to keep the head, wanted to keep the antlers. Um, I cleaned it. Um, clean the head, but I didn't do a great job. So um, I think I'm just going to take the antlers off. But they're, I think, the biggest okay. one. It's been in the free freezer for so long that I don't totally remember how big they are, but maybe three inches. And then yeah. the other one's a little shorter. So I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but it's kind of, you know, something I want to keep. <laughs> coat rack. That's what yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Be perfect. Key hang, coat rack. <laughs> Anything like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. 
the whole time you were describing that deer or before what was in your freezer, all I could think was like, Rudolph, no, frostbite, yes. (laughs) (laughs) For two years in the bottom of the freezer. Uh, That's happened to us before, certainly. I mean, I feel like, especially when you get a big animal like a deer, dealing with European mounts and other DIY stuff like that is low on the priority list when you have all the meat itself to deal with at the same time. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, we got a little window into some of your background um, with the freezer talk. Can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Uh, I grew up in Idaho, so southeast Idaho, Idaho Falls. Um, My family hunted, fished. um, We did a lot of camping and hiking and rafting, all sorts of stuff. I I started hunting when I was young. I I think the youngest I could be was 12 for deer hunting. Um, got a tag, um, we sighted in the rifle, uh, and then found a deer right away. Easy shot, perfect. Uh, my dad would say it was like the perfect first experience. And I pulled the gun up and I just started weeping. Um, and I, I used the excuse that the gun was too heavy, um, which of course was not true. I'd sighted it in like the week before, uh, and I could hold it. So, um, that's kind of when I gave up hunting. Um, to my dad's credit, he didn't push me to hunt. Um, he said, you know, you have to be ready. You have to want to do that. Um, so I didn't for a really long time. But I, I did fly fish, and I, I love fly fishing. I wouldn't say I'm I'm an expert at it. Um, I like to tie flies, but that's also, they're not pretty. But I've caught mm-hmm. fish with my flies, so they must work all right. I, I fool the right. fish. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how I grew up. I... I uh, was got really interested in wildlife ecology, and that really started um, when I was young. Uh, I was about five when wolves were reintroduced to Idaho and Yellowstone, and that kind of controversy um, really spurred my interest. You know, watching it on television, watching the arguments between ranchers and and wolf advocates and and hunters, um, and all of that really really made me interested in in wildlife. Uh, and predators and kind of human wildlife conflict. Um, so I went to school. I did my undergrad uh, at Michigan Tech University, which is in the UP of Michigan, which was an amazing place um, to go to school. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I absolutely loved that. Did a lot of um, kind of field tech jobs after that, uh, a lot of predator stuff. I worked in Southern California doing um coyote and bobcat and cougar following and trapping um down in in southern california in la um which was a total culture shock (laughs) we're gonna have to stop here for a moment um so you trapped cougars in la yeah i assisted so i was a i was a, a technician so my main job was following them with telemetry um, but we would every now and then go trap. So if you have seen the National Geographic um, mm-hmm. picture of the cougar in front of the Hollywood sign, mm-hmm. I've, that's that's one of them that we helped trap. The the main biologist, um, Jeff Sickich, oh, cool. is the one that follows follows them and, and traps them predominantly. But but we kind of help out as as technicians. Um, yeah, amazing experience. Really, so weird to be. There was one time we had there's there's a bunch of uh, wildlife cameras around the around the city in different places um, that are trying to capture these these 
critters crawling around so coyotes and bobcats and cougars uh but a lot of them are like under underpasses on like the 405 or the 101 or something um so we would crawl under these underpasses in our like dirty pants and our t-shirts and it would be like the entrance to bel-air and you'd see like these rolls royces pull out it's like man this is such a weird juxtaposition to (laughs) to la life yeah and i should i want to clarify my wow because (laughs) I think it's a conservation community. Wow. Right? I think anybody who works in, in conservation or, or biology knows like LA is this really unique environment where like the, the, the urban wildlife divide between LA and mountain lions is practically non-existent. And they're just an interesting part of that city. Like you just described, um, like, and, and to my knowledge that really doesn't exist anywhere else, like maybe Boulder, but <laughs> it seems to be a pretty unique, uh, relationship, um, in California. Yeah, I think, I think it's pretty unique, uh, to LA there. I mean, there's a lot of, um, urban wildlife research that's kind of taking off. So there's some here in the twin cities in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, that's looked at foxes and coyotes in the urban environment. There's uh, periodically cougars actually like a week ago here in the cities a cougar was spotted because they they travel every now and then dispersing males typically down like the minnesota river corridor um and there were reports about it and they finally found it dead on the road unfortunately um but every now and then they hit come. i think so yeah i think that yeah. it was hit by a car it's a dangerous life out there for young male lions, <laughs> young male, any animals really, but. Right. He's literally uh, on the prowl. Like, yeah. you know? yes. <laughs> the appropriateness of that statement in this context makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ellen, so you're in Southern California doing all this cool stuff. What next? Yeah, after California... I went to Yellowstone and helped. Uh, I was a, a wolf technician and a cougar technician there too. Um, so there we would. Um, I was on the group in the group that went to call them clusters. So when a when an animal is collared, particularly a predator, they kind of cluster at a kill site or a bedding site or something. You know where they spend a bunch of time. Um, so we would go investigate those sites to see if they were a kill or if they were a bedding site. Um, so we did that, and that that wolf project has been going on for you know years, as as long as the wolves have been reintroduced um, to some degree. Um, okay, hold on. We may not get through your introduction very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Another question. Um, so when you're when you're intentionally and deliberately approaching a site like that, like what are what are how do you do that? What's your distance? How do you maintain that safety? Sure. Um, so you typically don't visit it very soon after the wolves have been there. You you wait for several days. So there's, we never saw wolves at the sites um, that we Got went it. to. Um, and they're mostly, or at least somebody in the pack is collared. So you you kind of know where they are. And if they're in the area, you you would try to avoid that. Um, of course, we carry bear spray. It's the It was in the winter, um, okay. but kind of early winter and late winter. So, you know, there's the potential that bears are out. And we went to one kill once um, where it was late and um, we went to the first cluster and there was there were bedding sites there. You could see in the snow where the where the wolves had laid down. And so I said, OK, the next one's got to be the kill site. This is kind of where they rested. The next one's, you know, 
where they killed something or or scavenged on something, whatever it was. I don't remember. Um, so we were yelling, hey, bear, just just in case. And we yelled one more time as we were coming up to the site and a grizzly popped its head up, <laughs> looked at us. And so we all got our bear spray out and then kind of just backed up, backed off. And, and the bear didn't do anything. He just like hung out there. Uh, but we didn't go to that site. <laughs> that <time. laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like I feel like everybody who has been a wildlife technician for, you know, a couple seasons has a story like that. Like the, the one or two close times I can remember uh, when I was working in Colorado, there was a mule deer doe that we were tracking. She was pregnant and she ended up getting killed by a mountain lion. And we were like, after the fact, we realized that certainly at the workup site, the lion had been sitting there watching us the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Hindsight. I love it. Anyway, okay, so you are doing your next really cool thing in Yellowstone <laughs> with all these large carnivores. Please continue. Uh, Ashley, you're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all I can do to hold on for the ride here. <laughs> yeah, so I think after that, I um, I can't remember the, the next kind of step. I might have been back in, in Houghton. My husband, my boyfriend at the time, was finishing school. Um, or maybe I was in Cincinnati, I can't remember, after he had <laughs> graduated and was working. Um, but I had applied to an NSF grant, uh, GRFP, so Graduate Research Fellowship Program, and was awarded that, so I was able to go back to school. Um, I started at Michigan Tech, where I did my undergrad, and my advisor um, took a new job here at the University of Minnesota, so I followed um, and came here. It's been a great opportunity to um, kind of expand my network, um, work in a place um, where there's uh, w- work in the capital city. So we're can be a little more connected to, you know, DNR and research um, arms here as well. Uh, and it's it's been awesome. So uh, I started my PhD, I think, in 2015 or 2016 and graduated in December, defended last fall. Woohoo! Congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> Thank you. And it sounds like you had a baby during the course of that accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, Another yeah. huge one. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, right before I defended, um, I had my baby. So she's almost 14 months, 14 months tomorrow. So yep. Little Rose. Oh my goodness. Oh, I cannot imagine babe. giving birth and turning around and defending a PhD. <laughs> No, that just feels like a lot. <laughs> it was yeah. What what was that like? Uh, it was it was tough. Uh, my original goal had been to defend before, uh, and I just didn't <laughs> feel ready. Um, I I was getting really stressed out and and really worried about really finishing and and giving all of my chapters kind of the appropriate time and and love and um, so I talked to my advisor and he said, oh yeah, just push it off. Like no problem. Um, really supportive. Um, I had support from my my family that, you know, came out and watched Rose for a week while I was finishing writing up. Uh, and then my husband was super supportive to anything I needed if he needed to stay home from work and watch her while I finished. Um, that was it was it was great support. And that's how I got through it. I don't I don't know if I could have done it without that much support. Way to ask for what you need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. Air high five. Yeah. (laughs) 
So your, I guess I don't even know 100% what your um, PhD focused on, because the thing that we want to talk to you about today, it was kind of born from that. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, my, my PhD dissertation focused primarily on hunter-provided foods and particularly hunter bait. Um, so I, I did a lot of, a lot of work with um, remote cameras, with game cameras, um, watching which species come into bear bait piles um, that we constructed. Um, so looking at kind of those scavengers, um, we did one chapter looked at um, deer behavior around deer bait piles, which was that was done in Michigan where baiting for deer um, is legal. Um, and that that's kind of changed with CWD um, policies there in Michigan. But um, looking at how deer behave around the deer bait piles if maybe a predator like a wolf was there. Um, so we, you know, treated each pile with um, either wolf urine or water or lemon or something um, that might trigger the deer to, to be a little more um, wary of the site. And we did this in a couple places in Michigan where there are wolves and where there aren't to see um, how the deer would react. So that was, that was another chapter. Uh, we also looked at um, kind of how wolves move in relation to bear bait. Uh, in Minnesota. So some collared wolves uh, and known location of bear bait piles to see if they're using them, uh, if they're returning to them and and kind of that that kind of stuff. So hunter hunter food, um, but a little di bit different than what I am focusing on now. Okay. That focusing, it sounds like more specifically on bait piles, like man-made bait piles, as opposed to like leftover um, gut piles. Yes, yes. So my dissertation, yep, focused on bait, uh, and now I'm focusing on on gut piles. Okay, before we switch, <laughs> before we go <laughs> to gut piles, I want to touch back on, first of all, I want to know what you found for all of your chapters, because yeah. all of that sounds super interesting. Um, <laughs> and this podcast but, is going to be two hours. Just yeah, <laughs> minimum. <laughs> um, so we'll go back to that. But also, when you were describing... Um, the bait piles for deer in Michigan made me think of some research when I was in grad school, I used to go to, it's called the Southeastern deer study group. And it's what it sounds like. It's a conference for deer in the Southeast every year. Um, and there was some research that had been done in Texas where they found, I don't remember the specifics. So basically they found that, um, does older, mature does were being like super aggressive towards young bucks at feeders like stomping them. <laughs> and um, that's what I was thinking of when you started talking about that. But then I realized you were looking at it in the context, not of like interspecific aggression or anything like that, but um, the reaction to the potential for predators. So how did that play out? Yeah. And that would be interesting to look at. We have, we used cameras. So that's something that, you know, we could go back and kind of analyze that as well and compare with that, with that Texas study, which might be interesting. Um, but we found, so we, we treated each site with either wolf urine, um, lemon. So the lemon was supposed to be kind of a novel scent um, that maybe they would react to, maybe they wouldn't react to. So kind of just help us distinguish whether they're reacting to wolf urine or just a novel scent. Uh, and then water was our, our uh, kind of control. Uh, and we found that the, the deer didn't really react that much to the wolf urine at all in either site. So where deer were 
um, familiar with wolves and where deer were not really familiar with wolves. We, we didn't really see a reaction. Um, but when we did our field work, we took measurements of the vegetation uh, around the sites, around the bait piles, um, kind of looking at um, hiding potential. So where a predator might hide or, or where a deer might not be able to see a predator coming, you know. Um, and when we put that data, we'll put those data into um, our, our models, we found that deer in the UP, where in the Upper Peninsula, where wolves have occurred with them now for, for quite a while and deer are familiar with wolves, we found that um, deer were uh, a little more um, wary at those bait piles where, where the vegetation was more dense. And where it was more open, they were a little, um, they were, they would eat more, they were less wary. Um, but in the lower peninsula where there are not wolves or they're functionally not there, um, we, we found that there wasn't really that, that same pattern. So the deer down there weren't, weren't really looking for wolves. Okay. So I'm going to stop you right there <laughs> because Ellen, I need to cite this paper in my own manuscript that I'm currently writing um, because I, I looked at how hunting pressure, so predation risk in Mississippi impacts mature buck movements. Okay. And pretty much what I'm finding is that it doesn't. And I'm attributing that to the vegetative cover, but <laughs> this, yeah. So I need the name of that paper. Anyway, okay. it's, Marcia. it's coming out soon, hopefully. <laughs> okay. I've just actually got the, the manuscript back from co-authors, co um, and we're hoping to, to get it out really soon very cool okay hot off the press i'll grab it <laughs> yeah marsha what um, were you gonna say yeah no i just had um one clarifying question and then one completely unscientific question <laughs> the <laughs> clarifying question was so was um the in the upper peninsula where they um uh were impacted their movement was impacted by the longer vegetation was that regardless of the presence of the wolf urine or did the wolf urine make a uh a contribution to their behavior. Yeah, it was regard. It was uh, not correlated with the wolf urine. So okay. it was just the vegetation um, that really did it. And my second question is, how did you gather the wolf urine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can order it online. Classic. <laughs> and it, okay, how, and how, you kind of pee how you did want. they gather the wolf urine? <laughs> um, I don't know. I I know that like. Um, I think like elk farms, you know, you can buy, you know, elk urine to, for hunting. I think they have just like grates where they are and they kind of collect it that way. I kind Ooh. of assume it's the same way. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. What an interesting job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was. I want to meet that guy at the party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. That was good. Well, next chapter. <laughs> yeah, we also looked at uh, bear bait. So we constructed a bunch of bear bait piles. And this was my first chapter, the first thing I did, um, which it was it was fun, but also really gross because you can bait in Michigan. You can bait for bear um, with just about anything. Um, there's some restrictions of like when you can use corn and, and fruits, but otherwise you use like donuts and pastries and we had a, a restaurant in, in Houghton that let me kind of dive into their grease bin and take their grease. 
Um, so we constructed bait piles around kind of the, the upper part of the UP around um, the Keweenaw Peninsula area uh, and put cameras on them and found, uh, saw what, what scavenger species were coming in to visit them. Um, and it was a lot of fisher came in. A lot of, a lot of what you'd expect, a lot of raccoons, a lot of, um, you know, crows or, you know, different birds. But I was surprised a little bit by, by the fisher. Yeah, I thought fishers were pretty strict carnivores. Yeah, I have some really good pictures of, like, sticky buns in fishers' mouths. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my God. gosh, that's funny. Okay, so <laughs> meat except in the presence of donuts. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess when you put it that way. <laughs> um, so what's the, like, I think one, what's the conservation impact of that, right? Because I, I think of bear bait piles, you know, I've seen deer hovering over bear bait piles. And of course, then you can get concerns for CWD and things like that. But what are some other conservation concerns of that? Yeah, I, so we didn't look at, you know, the impacts on the species, um, but there is some research in Wisconsin, kind of looking at at bears, um, and they do um, some some more complicated analysis with hair samples and stable isotopes to see what the bears are eating, uh, and then they can do some, you know, uh, metrics on the bear, look and see what kind of fat stores they have. All this all this interesting interesting stuff to learn about the bears, um, and see how it might be impacting them physiologically. Um, and not even just movement. Um, so we didn't look at that, but but there is there are some researchers uh, in Wisconsin looking at um, how it might be impacting bears. Uh, and of course, I think that can be translated to these other scavenger species that we found at those sites as well. Yeah. yeah. Diabetes. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was say, like the whole bear population with diabetes, like a wally for bears. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I don't remember the specific physiology behind this, but um, bears going into hibernation actually, I think, do like a reverse diabetes. And it, I think they're studying it to try to find different approaches to treating diabetes in people. I don't Ellen, is this ringing a bell for you? Like vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. That's I don't it. remember enough to talk <laughs> yeah. very much about it, but... <laughs> But it's a real thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Next chapter. <laughs> we also, with that um, bear bait project, we had some questions in the Michigan um, bear hunter survey. So we kind of asked, we asked if people used a camera. Uh, we asked if they saw scavenger species. And then from a list, which species um, they saw. Uh, at their bear bait piles. And then we looked at that compared to what we found to compare whether those survey questions um, might be informative to managers to see what scavenger species um, first are coming into bait piles, but then also to use that as an index of those species. Um, so right now, a lot of a lot of states use, you know, hunter harvest as an index for species, just to basically see if populations are going up or down or staying stable. So we compared um, what was reported on those surveys with those other indices that are used commonly. Uh, and we found that the, especially for Fisher and Martin, for the two mustelids that we found most commonly, um, are the reporting from hunters um, correlated really well with the, the trapper reports. Um, so this might be another 
method to record species information from hunters. Um, it's just an easy, it was, it just showed that it was a really easy way to collect some more data about a plethora of species that, that might be seen at these bait piles anyway. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like, you know, one of the things that wildlife agencies spend a lot of time and money on is surveying populations, right? So if you can find a quicker, faster, cheaper, effective way to do that, I feel like that's always a win. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, I mean, it's obviously it's not free and obviously it's not no work. Um, a surveyor would, would correct me if I said that. Um, because they're putting the work in and they're got it, they have to analyze that data, those data, but, um, it's definitely, it, it gets a good, uh, you can give you a big, big picture, um, where, you know, if you were an, a wildlife agency putting out those cameras around, you know, all of Michigan is, is just impossible financially and with personnel. So, um, it's just another method of, of gathering some data. Yay, citizen science. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, hunters, conservation, that whole thing still going on. That's good. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's me being a little tongue-in-cheek over here. Uh, let's take a quick break to hear from our partners. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. So Ellen, before the break, you kind of gave us a rundown of the things that you've looked at for your PhD. And following that, you were able to kind of branch off with this new question, um, still tar still targeting food sources for wildlife, but kind of from a different source. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this, this project um, we're calling the Awful Wildlife Watching Project. Um, came oh, out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awful. This, I love this. Can you please spell it just for uh, O F F? They spell awful. <laughs> it, you're right. O F F A L. I just wanted oh, to point not, out. Yeah. The -F -F -A -L. <laughs> I can spell it writing. My spelling ability is atrocious. <laughs> yep. Mine too. Thank goodness for spell track. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's a play on words, right? It's, it's, awful or awful, or I've heard it a few different ways, um, or gut piles um, is how I, you know, grew up talking about it. Um, but it's a project that um, asks hunters to be citizen scientists or community scientists um, and help us understand what scavengers are coming in to eat, eat their guts, essentially. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, and it kind of started through my dissertation, talking with some people that um, run the extension, help run the extension program here at the University of Minnesota, 
uh, and particularly the Master Naturalist program. And we, we talked about different ideas that would be cool. And they said, oh, you know, we don't know how many of our master naturalists are hunters or who will be interested. So it was kind of just a trial to see. And we had so much interest um, from master, master naturalists. Um, so that was excellent. Um, there were a lot of hunters. Um, and so we had the first year, which I think was 2018, had people put out uh, cameras at their, their gut piles and um, send us the images that they that they got back is kind of the the basics of the the hunter participation part of that that project. Okay, let's talk logistics. So once a gut pile exists, how long does the camera stay on it? Yeah, so we got a lot of um, pointers for this. Um, the the cameras stay on hopefully for a month is what we ask the hunters and we we had a lot of hunters you know call and say you know the gut pile is gone it's a it's white-tailed deer gut pile so pretty small um the guts are gone you know in a day or a week maximum you know a lot of times but sometimes if you're hunting late in the season if you're you know doing muzzleloader or if you're in archery and you happen to shoot a deer in late december uh, especially in, in far northern Minnesota, if it snows and freezes, uh, that gut pile will last a month or more. A lot of times they, you know, come thawed in the spring and, and scavengers find them. So, of course, our project's not picking that up, um, but we want to be able to compare um, the gut piles that might last a month to the ones that might last a day. Uh, and it's hard to compare those if our cameras aren't aren't out there for the same amount of time. So we like them to be out for a month. Cool. And, and I like I didn't it uh, it didn't occur to me, but it makes complete sense that you would limit it to a specific species just to ensure um, cohesiveness across data. That's interesting. I not my brain hadn't made that jump. <laughs> Yeah, and, and we would love to do other species. Right now in Minnesota, that's primarily the ungulate that's that's harvested. There is some elk hunting in the far northwest Minnesota. Um, it would be interesting to kind of compare that area with, you know, elk gut piles and, and deer gut piles in the same area. Um, there's no longer moose hunting in Minnesota currently. Um, and of course, we could do, you know, predator gut piles, we could do black bear too, which would also be really interesting to compare. But right now we're focused on deer. Um, and that's, that's what we're, that's what we're asking hunters to, to help us help us with. Yeah, and Ellen, forgive me if you mention this, but what's the goal? I mean, what are you really trying to discern here? Absolutely, we are, it's, it's pretty basic questions that we're asking. Um, we really just want to know what scavenger species are coming into gut piles across Minnesota um, <clears throat> from the north and the south. Um, there are four distinct biomes. So there's like a coniferous region up north, if you think like boundary waters, kind of that area. Um, and then there's the uh, deciduous region, which is the, you know, rivers area kind of crisscrosses the the central part of Minnesota and the Twin Cities uh, where the um, Minnesota River is where the Mississippi River comes in uh, and then there's the prairie region which is uh, now primarily farm uh, farmland so that's a lot of western Minnesota and then there's an Aspen parkland um, also way up north um, and all of those different habitat types 
are going to influence the different scavengers that that live there or that can and will find the gut piles. So we really want to compare those. Um, there's a lot of different human use in those different areas too that are going to impact which scavenger species come in and when and how often. Um, so it's it's pretty basic questions, but it, it can get really um, complicated. And then other little questions keep popping off that hopefully one day we can um, try to tackle as well. <clears throat> Marshall, I wanted to give you time because I feel like you probably yeah. had something to say. No, actually, go ahead. I'm good for now. Well, when I uh, was doing my master's project in Mississippi, there was uh, another project going on. A PhD student was involved with it where basically they were taking uh, feral hogs and just leaving them out in the woods, killing them and leaving them out in the woods. Um, and then kind of what you're saying, putting cameras on, monitoring what happened. Um, it was to simulate a mass mortality event. So things, you know, like what you hear about maybe in the African savanna, if there's like, I don't even know what would cause it, lightning strikes, weird things. It's not common. Um, but kind of to simulate this huge resource pulse into an ecosystem and see what cascades from that. And that was kind of how I was thinking about this project that you're describing, Ellen. And, you know, there's a lot to talk about with gut piles. But first and foremost, it's interesting to think about the fact that absent of hunters, they wouldn't exist, right? Like it's, it's food on the landscape that wouldn't be there, at least not at that point in time exactly, um, if a hunter hadn't killed a deer. And I don't know if in the course of your research and thinking about the project, if you've come across or thought very much about that element. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it is, it's a pulse in a different way, not as, you know, constrained spatially as, as like a mass mortality, but definitely temporally. So in time, these um, gut piles are occurring mostly over a two week period in November here in Minnesota when um, firearm season is. Um, and it, in Minnesota, I think they harvest um, about 200,000 deer every year, give or take, depending on the year. Um, but if you imagine like what a gut pile weighs from a white-tailed deer multiplied by 200,000, that's that's tons of, of, of resource on the landscape for uh, scavengers. And, and like you said, it's a really unusual time of year. Obviously all of these deer in the absence of, of hunters will die eventually. Um, but typically wild deer um, die more, you know, in the spring when they've gone through a harsh winter uh, and their foods, uh, you know, stores are, are depleted. Um, but in the, in the fall, deer typically have, you know, gone through a good summer, hopefully, and eaten a lot. Um, they're really strong. It's, it's more a hard time for predators and those that, that hunt deer. Um, so the fact that hunters hunt in the fall or November uh, and leave these gut piles out is is really different um, for scavengers. And even even in the presence of hunting, I mean, we've hunted for millennia, right? And and there's resources that have been left for scavengers. So I think scavengers and hunters are so closely tied, um, you know, historically and prehistorically. Um, but it's been so recently. Uh, over time, you know, that we have made these seasons and kind of constricted it to this 
unusual time of year. Um, so that that makes this resource pretty interesting as well. Yeah, that is super interesting. I think about um, fawns being born in the spring and that, you know, along with a lot of other births is kind of a resource pulse as well um, at a time when, like you're saying, everything's hungry. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, I guess, how do you, how do you think it impacts the ecosystem? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think of some of these scavengers of what they might get from, from gut piles. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, wolves definitely use it um, and they might be um, <clears throat> kind of supplemented a little by it, but they're a lot larger. Maybe it isn't as much of an impact. Um, it's hard to say. It would be really interesting to find out, but I'm thinking of like, we find flying squirrels at these these gut piles. How does that impact this tiny little animal that might be relying on these gut piles that it finds um, that it wouldn't otherwise? Um, is it replacing a source or is it supplementing it? Um, we don't know. We're not taking samples from these scavenger species, at least not yet. Um, so we we don't have that kind of those kind of data to look at. But it would be really fascinating to see uh, and kind of make judgments about how it might be impacting populations. As with everything, this takes me back to the show alone. <laughs> and, and from watching that, <laughs> we all know that you can't make it through winter without fat. Um, and it strikes me that the fat around the organs, I, I'm assuming most hunters leave most of the awful there um, from my own experience. I try not to anymore, but um, I'm assuming there's a lot of fat there. And I'm thinking some of these little animals that you're talking about, Ellen, could squirrel away the bulk of the fat they need to get through winter from one or maybe two gut piles. Yeah, I would think so. And and yeah, I think most hunters leave most things. They might take the heart, maybe the liver. But yeah, there's, you know, good, it's good food. It's It's like the most healthy food that there is. If there's a full deer out on the landscape that dies the things that we leave are the things that they eat first because they're the most nutritious so definitely i think animals will benefit or can benefit from from the the gut piles left so let's flip it and let's talk about what the negative impacts could be uh, one thing that comes to my mind especially when we're talking about deer being harvested with high-powered rifles or I know growing up in Minnesota, we were actually able to hunt with um, shotguns for deer, with slugs. Uh, lead, lead ammunition, and I don't know, we know it, like, if you shoot an animal in the vitals or, you know, unfortunately, back farther in their guts, there's going to be a lot of fragmentation and lead left behind, and specifically in the gut pile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for our project, we're not asking hunters what they're using and we're not, um, if somebody asks us, I will say, I personally use copper. Um, it, it works for me, it's effective, and here's why. You know, it's, um, I think about the scavengers that might be eating, I think about me eating the food or my daughter eating, eating the food. Um, it, it gives me peace of mind, um, but we're not asking the hunters because that's not our particular question. Um, but definitely it's it's on our minds um, because, like you said, research research shows that um, there's tiny, tiny pieces of lead that are left in in the guts or in the meat um, that we can't pick out. You can't just cut around the bloodshot uh, and get everything and know you got everything. 
Um, so it's definitely a question. Um, for our part of the project, like I said, we're not asking hunters what they're using, but we are hoping to do um, kind of a, a follow-up project or, or a partner project um, experiment where we um, ask hunters essentially um, if they would use lead, if they looked at these pictures and knew some information about lead. Do you still want to use lead um, or are you more um, open to using uh, non-lead ammunition or is it a price thing or is it a tradition thing or is it uh, a ballistics thing? What is, what's your motivation and how might images and information from this project affect your decision? So we have mm -hmm. an, a component, but it's, it's separate from this other, um, these other questions that we're asking. I think that's really interesting. And I'm, I, because, um, you know, so much of the conversation around lead ammunition um, is grounded in its impact on eagles, in part because they're so sensitive to lead toxicity. Um, and, uh, and I think we need to broaden the conversation out to include broader impacts. I'm going to use the word broader one more time. <laughs> um, to see how it impacts other species and what the other ramifications of having that lead on the landscape are. Um, and so I'm super curious to um, follow your research and see what comes of that and what um, feedback you get from hunters if we have a fuller perspective of what actually happened to that gut pile when we're not there. Yeah, absolutely. And and how we have our projects set up right now, we're not taking any tissue samples or anything from scavengers, um, <clears throat> from scavengers or the gut piles. But um, I think, like you said, a lot of the focus is on on eagles or birds. Um, they're you know our bald eagles are our national bird, and they're they're iconic. And and when they're dying, it's it's hard to hard to um, see that. And it's it's so obvious um, in the in the in those data that we see when they come in sick um, that it's it's likely gut piles. Um, but yeah, of course, there's other animals that are eating those gut piles, and we know that that humans are affected by lead in some in some level. So I mean, not being a an expert in that that area of wildlife ecology or or um, biology, I would I would posit that other mammals will also be impacted to some level um, from lead. But um, this project, as we have it right now, won't necessarily get at, at those questions directly. Yeah, it's interesting too to think about um, lead not going away, like. If there's a gut pile that, you know, the deer was shot with lead, so there's like frag fragments in it, something comes along, eats that lead tainted meat, and then the lead is in that animal, and then something comes along and eats that animal. And I'm talking about bioaccumulation here, um, or maybe biomagnification. I don't know. It's been too long since I was in school to remember which is which. But the idea that, it doesn't just go away. Like, it's not just like, ah, oh, it's in this gut pile and whatever eats it might have a bad impact, but then right. it's over, you know, it, it continues. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Know. It's like the dark version of it given with the muffin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe we need to make children's books about, uh, non-lead ammunition. <laughs> children's books like Coraline. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I have a lot of really, what I think are really good children's books ideas. Um, maybe that, that would be a good podcast question for the future. What children's book do you want to write? <laughs> okay. Um, hunting getting, version. Yeah, hunting version. I'm getting off topic here. Uh, okay, so Ellen, originally I wanted to ask you this question. I don't know that it's super relevant anymore after learning more about your research, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious. Uh, what, after doing all this research and being in this world from the angle that you've been in for this long, what do you think that hunters need to know about feeding wildlife in general? Sure. I, I think that um, hunters need to realize that what they're leaving on the landscape is eaten by other things. And I don't think that that is anything like, you know, spectacular and mind blowing to any hunter. Um, hunters know this. Um, if you are getting a deer or anything, you've probably seen crows or ravens or eagles kind of circling. They, you know, maybe followed your gunshot there and know what's coming. So I think all hunters know that, that things are eating, eating what they leave, but, um, to be mindful of what that is and to be really curious about what that is, because, I think um, through this project, it's been so rewarding to listen to hunters get excited about what they're seeing. They might know that ravens and eagles were going to come in, but when they put the camera out, they saw that like a bobcat family came in. You know, there's a, a mother with three kittens that came in and, ate, and they it's that's so cool. And hunters will say, you know, this is this is amazing to see. I didn't know that everything came in and ate that. Um, so it's just. It, it, I think I think knowing that for this this gut pile project feeding wildlife, um, it it's just puts for me it puts myself more into um, the community of wildlife, right? It, it puts me more into that circle of life, knowing that I took that animal, I ate that animal, and then some other animals are benefiting from that as well, and we're all kind of connected, and um, that might be a little. I don't know, flowery for some people, but I think that that is so cool. And I yeah. talking with other hunters, I think that, that they also really appreciate that. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. I think it's a really interesting take on the idea of reciprocity in hunting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. Uh, I think we need to transition to hits and misses. But first, there's something else I wanted to ask, Ellen. I can see in your profile picture that you have your daughter on your back <laughs> in what looks to be an osprey pack. Am I right? It is, yep. Okay, do you like that thing? Because mine, I hate it. I don't like it. And I want to know how it fits you. Yeah, so I guess we're not getting sponsorships. From them. <laughs> yeah, no, I trust me. I called Osprey. I was like, "You need to make a camo one," and they're like, "We don't take ideas." I guess something with copyright. Anyway. Okay, that's. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't understand that world enough, but all right. <laughs> um, I like it. Um, we got that one because it adjusts well. So my mm -hmm. husband is like six four, and I'm like five three, so we didn't mm -hmm. want to buy two. Um, so it adjusts to small and large, but it's kind of like not small enough for my torso and not yeah. large enough for his. So it doesn't fit perfectly well. Um, we haven't gone on like really long hikes with it. So it's when, if I have my hiking poles, then it's much better. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I appreciate the feedback because ours does not fit me either. If it's my husband. Okay. 
but I, I think I'm a little bit taller than you, but I have a, a relatively short torso, I think, and I've struggled with it. So I was just curious, <laughs> but the sunshade is nice. Yes. <laughs> we should reach out to companies like um, Mystery Ranch or Stone Glacier, uh, who do take into consideration torso length. <laughs> yeah, we should. Backpacks and be like, hey, how about a kid pack? Yeah, that would be awesome. I wonder if they take ideas. <laughs> oh you gosh. can have like the, 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 um, meat packing spot, you know, in the back, it like sits out. Oh, I like there. it. I like yes. it. Genius. <laughs> a baby, a baby, uh, what do they call that? A shelf. You can have a shelf for a baby yes. instead yeah. of a shelf for a hand quarter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the same weight, right? It's, oh, yeah. It's got more legs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I've got a lot of suggestions for any company willing to listen. <laughs> Okay, hits and misses. Um, let's see, Marsha, do you want to lead us off? Sure, I have. Um, I have two hits. Uh, nice. Uh, one is yeah. Um, well, one. I mean, one's food related and one's dog related. So if anybody's surprised, they haven't listened to enough of our podcast. <laughs> but uh, I, so my dad. Um, harvested a bear this spring like a huge bear so we have like 200 pounds of bear meat and so bear is the new beef right it's like all we're eating and it's fantastic it's a super tasty bear so I'm excited about that but I'm getting creative in how we cook it and on Sunday for our dinner I made bear meatball subs mm -hmm. I know that's not highly recommend yeah. a I don't make meatball subs enough and I need to kind of add that to my repertoire um, <laughs> but b bear meatball subs um, they were a win and then secondly, I went out to the river um, the other day to uh, to hang for a bit and took Zoot with me. And, you know, I haven't had her for very long. And so we're just kind of discovering new landscapes together. Or I'm discovering how she behaves in new landscapes. And this um, river was right next to a meadow uh, where the grasses are like chest high on me right now. Right. They're just like super tall. Um, and, you know. And watching her dolphin run <laughs> was was just delightful. It, it just made me laugh. And it was delightful to watch her do that. And she was off exploring. So there were times where I couldn't even see where she was. But then I'd look off in the distance and see this little black dolphin just making her way through the waves of grass. And it was fun. That is all. Those are hits. Oh, that's good. Those are definitely hits. Uh, Ellen, what have you been aiming for? I was aiming for getting uh, three miles in a day um, for the past month and a half. I was participating in, uh, in a hike to hunt challenge. Um, and so runs or walks a day, about three miles on average. And I met the goal. I was sick for like a week and didn't do anything. So had to do a little more at the end, but got it in. <laughs> I'm trying to get into some good, healthy hunting shape and, and skiing shape and, and, I think I'm I'm slowly working there, but trying to be be kind to myself and and give myself time. Good for you. That's fantastic. Can I ask <laughs> yeah. how you beat the Minnesota heat in achieving that goal? This it, the past few weeks have been very pleasant. Today is going to be a sauna or a sauna. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like 107 with the heat index, so Oof. I probably won't be walking today, but. 
before oh. it was fairly pleasant. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is not the Minnesota I remember. I'll say that. <laughs> What's the humidity level? Do you have? Do you know that like, off the top of your head? Seventy something percent, I think today. Oh. Yeah. Ellen. <laughs> Do we have an air conditioner? <laughs> we do, yes, yes. Okay. Thank goodness. I don't know how it works. That just sounds so miserable. I can't even. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, way to go. I feel like that's very impressive. I mean, just trying to exercise at all when you have a little one, trying to do mm-hmm. anything, you know, outside of daily, daily grind. <laughs> it can be tough so I commend you for your efforts and and for making up the time loss that's very impressive um I have a hit I was trying really hard to find um an appointment to get my daughter a COVID shot and I wanted the Moderna not the Pfizer for whatever reasons and I could not find what I spent like two hours calling around at one point a nurse at a health department told me that the Moderna Pfizer or the Moderna shot for kids under five doesn't exist. And I was like, what? You're wrong. You're wrong. And she was like, well, we don't know about anything like that here. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I was a lot of confidence. Yeah. I was just pulling my hair out. And, but luckily, luckily I found an appointment. It's just going to be like less than an hour drive. So we're going to go do that tomorrow. And I'm really excited about that. Awesome. And yeah. A lot of relief sure there. I know I how excited you are for a shot. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, the shot part is not going to be fun, but um, yeah, the relief that will come with it is is going to be a win. So a hit. For sure. For sure. Very much so. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Ellen, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. And as I feel like I've been saying to all of our guests, I learned a lot because every time I do. Okay. Um, and yeah, maybe definitely let me know when that paper gets published because I'm excited. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll have it. We'll add it to our book club. Yes. <laughs> Some light reading. <laughs> Good. Well, yeah. thank you for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. And until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm-hmm.